Welcome to the Be Nice with Andy podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Be Nice Andy podcast, a sports podcast for the people. My name is John Lee. And I'm Andy Benjamin. So, Andy, week one in the NFL just went down, but I actually want to talk about the Serena Williams U.S. Open final. Um, for those of you who didn't catch it, Serena Williams lost in somewhat dramatic fashion to Naomi Osaka. This was her first uh, Grand Slam championship, but I think... I think the narrative around this game was kind of the way Serena Williams um, conducted herself. And uh, she hasn't had the best track record at the U.S. Open Finals in 2009. I forgot the exact term she used, but something along the lines of like shoving a ball in, in someone's mouth or something like that. But um, I'm sure you can YouTube all the videos and stuff like that. I'm sure you've seen them. Um, what are your takeaways from what happened? Yeah, so I, I mean, for me, like I can understand where Serena's coming from. And, you know, you never want to see any athletes kind of like lose it out there or or, you know, blame the umpires, blame the officials or whatever. But in a case like this, I mean, especially being an athlete, I mean, you just get so caught up in like the moment of trying to like win and be your best. And especially this, I mean, this is a, an actually a championship match. And for me, like the umpire is completely out of line. I mean, whether she was getting coaching or not, the whole thing started from him basically giving her a warning about her, co- her coach coaching her during the match, which I guess is not allowed to happen. Right. And yeah. So I guess, yeah, let's go this step by step just so I get your position on everything. So I think uh, it started when the coach was giving uh, like signals to Serena. Now, the coach said that he, he actually openly admitted it, but then his defense was that everyone does it. In Serena's defense, um, based on where she was on the court, I don't know if anyone can really kind of hold her up to if she actually saw the signals, but the coach admitted that he, he gave signals. So where do you stand in, in that, that part with the warning that the, the umpire gave her? Right. So, I mean, I personally don't think it's that big of a deal. And I'm not a, uh, you know, I'm not like a professional tennis player or anything like that. I've never really been a tennis player. But from where I'm at, the, the coach also mentioned that he's never been um, called out for doing that in his entire career and that he pretty much probably does it all the time along with every other coach. So for me, the umpire, uh, if that's, I mean, I don't know if it's a chair umpire or whatever it is, uh, making a point to actually call him out and give her an official warning at that stage of a championship match is completely absurd to me. I just think it's ridiculous. I mean, you never want to see, and it seems to happen in all sports these days where an umpire or officials just kind of insert themselves way too much into what's going on that it takes away from the greatness of what's actually going on. And in this case, I just think it's completely unnecessary for him to have even brought it up in the match, let alone take it to the next level, which I'm sure we're going to you know, get into uh, right after that. I agree that I, 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 I personally obviously wouldn't have. I think people say that the, the refs or the umpires, their job is to make sure that they're not part of the scene, like they should be doing things to make the game flow and not being the highlight of it. Um, I think the best analogy I've heard from like kind of everyone's reaction is kind of like the speeding thing where uh, the, I think the coach's standpoint was like everyone does it. Well, everyone does it, but if you get caught, you, you don't go to the, you're, I mean, you might whine to the cop and you might be like, how come you didn't pull over those five people? And his literally what he'll say to you is, I just decided to pick you or I only saw you. Um, I know it's not the same thing. Apple Orange is like a, a cop pulling you over versus this. But it's like, 
I think if it, I think if the ref calls on you, which again was surprising to everyone, I don't think you can whine or complain about it. But uh, I, again, I, I agree with you. I don't think the the ref, the ref should have complained about it. But basically, um, I liken it to like an NBA game, like when you get called for one technical, even if it's a quick whistle, you know you're on a short leash for the rest of the game because two technicals you get ejected from a game. So when uh, Serena then I think got pissed about some sort of um, one of her one of her one of the plays and she, uh, she smashed a racket, which I I believe it's an automatic uh, like just a, another warning. Basically, there's no subject subjectivity around it. Um, I think I've heard some other people say where some of the guys crash the racket and sometimes they don't get it, but I can't confirm or deny that. But I mean, I know Serena's passionate. When you watch the video, she got pissed. I think she missed a shot and then she breaks a racket. Um, right. Obviously, if she didn't have that first warning she wouldn't have lost uh, the points but uh, she did did you did you think that was okay well I think it all ties back to the first thing that happened I mean especially like when you're all you're in the moment where you know you're so competitive and like I said I mean it's not like this was just like uh, like uh, you know not so important match. I mean, they were talking about a grand slam, grand slam final. And I just think it ties back to her frustration from, you know, what happened with the uh, chair umpire uh, initially kind of questioning almost like her integrity. Cause for her, if you watch the video, she's, she's not so, so much angry at, you know, something that happened in the game. It's almost like she's more upset with the fact that he questioned whether she was cheating and, you know, and I can completely understand that. I mean, you know, if you start getting your, your, integrity question especially somewhere in like uh you know live tv and a huge um you know place like that for something that's probably been done all the time by everybody i mean like it's not like the coach was out there holding her hand guiding her through like the next move it's for me it just i think the frustration of that and then you know maybe not playing at her best because she's clearly not playing at her best in that game i mean she got beat pretty badly in the first set and you know then everything kind of snowballs i think from there so so, you know, maybe she probably wouldn't have gotten that frustrated if that hadn't happened. And it's almost like kind of an instigative type thing where she just didn't really seem to be able to get that out of her mind, what she was initially angry with in the first place. So, Andy, so I think the third part of that was, um, you know, so after the warning about the cheating and then the racket, she lost point and then. Um, I think the third kind of final straw that broke the camel's back was when you see that she, she clearly doesn't let up. I mean, I mean, they did a really, I guess that's a good job in production value where they're, they're like, they're micing her up. It's like zoomed in. I, you know, I don't watch enough tennis where I, like everyone has all these examples with macro and all these other guys examples where they get off the hook with, you know, using server and stuff like that. I don't know in those matches if there's like such a tight zoom and great audio where you see all this. Um, so, you know, when you watch the replay, you see her like go on and on that she's demanding an apology and that she doesn't love. It's kind of like when those, again, from my basketball background, when you watch the NBA players and like they just won't stop, like they'll, they'll like literally constantly barrage the, um, the refs and then the refs just, they're not even instigated by a specific word. They're almost, you know, they almost lose the piece. The guy won't stop like berating them basically. And so when you watch that, again, I'm not, I'm not really defending them higher, but like she, she really won't let up about demanding the apology. Like, I don't know, in hindsight, I, I, I mean, I agree with you about her competitive spirit, but again, I don't know what would have been a huge difference if like say behind closed doors or after the match, if after he looked at it and like he apologized or if you'd be, be 
behind closed doors, but she seemed to want to make an example of him about getting an apology in public, in person at that time. But that's where it really went off the rails, where she calls him a thief, which again is not the worst word. I'm pretty sure guys, you know, drop f bombs or other women may may do it. But I think in a lot of the coverage I've seen is it's not so much that she called him a thief, but it's kind of um, relative to the situation, right? Is leading up to that where she wouldn't stop, and then kind of the last struggle with the penalty there that she loses the whole set. Um, and then you see her, how emotional she is. And, um, and then just the conclusion of that, where she basically blames sexism for what happened. So again, there's a lot of moving parts into this, you know, whether you think that he had a quick whistle when he started with that cheating. And then do you agree with Serena Williams and the sexism or? Yeah, I actually do because, uh, you know, I, and I don't know if the rules were exactly the same back when, you know, McEnroe and Connors sure. and all those guys were playing. So I don't know specifically. I mean, I do watch tennis. I love watching tennis and I do follow it, a, uh, you know, a bit, but, I don't follow the rules, I guess, quite as closely as I do some other sports. But that being said, it's like, yeah, why is she being held to, I guess, a different standard when it comes to, you know, how she acts out there? Because then you see, you know, clearly, I mean, she handles uh, the end of the match in terms of congratulating uh, Naomi with the most class you could ever see from someone who's as big of a competitor as her. I mean, she comes up, she gives her a hug. She basically tells the crowd to stop booing. And, you know, she handles that very well. And quite honestly, I mean, if you look at the situation, I don't really think she was that out of line calling him a thief. I mean, he took a point away from her in the biggest match of the entire year. And it just, for me, again, it's not something that I, I think had to happen. It's one of those deals where you hope that the, no matter what the sport is, you hope the official, the umpire, um, the referees can kind of close their ears just enough to be able to not have it really affect the game the way that it did. But yeah, I mean, I think that people loved when McEnroe did that stuff. I mean, people thought it was the funniest thing in the world. And, you know, you watch back matches and, you know, he's actually got commercials and they do skits about how McEnroe used to go nuts. And, I mean, what he used to do is way worse than what Serena did. So, uh, yeah, I mean, to that point, I don't know why she should be held to a different standard. I mean, she, was, she had a, a good reason to be frustrated with this guy. And, you know, uh, so for me, I do think that played a part in this. And, um, you know, it's unfortunate, but... Uh, so, Andy, let me you, let me ask you... Um, <laughs> I'm gonna. It's gonna take me a while to set this up, but let me let me have this long drawn set up, and then let me get your thoughts on uh, this kind of example. So, um, I, I think when I was watching the coverage of this, I think I heard a lot of people say um, this this umpire specifically. I think, and they they give specific examples with big name players, but like Djokovic and Nadal. I forgot what the infractions were, but he gave them warnings. I don't know if in those matches, after those, they, those guys got their warnings, that they, that, you know, they're more uh, on good behavior or um, more respectful or, or what have you. So, uh, like, having those two examples out of context and that this guy's quote-unquote never had a record, um, I, I don't know. I don't know. I want to, I, I don't want to say that she was out of line using sexism just because for, for that fact, for that to be fact, you'd have to say that he somehow treats the guys differently. Not like other empires that were not him that, you know, McEnroe, et cetera, et cetera, where that actually somebody, somebody said that McEnroe did get a warning or something like that in like an Australian open or something like that. But I guess there's not enough examples that I can think of that like warrant her to call him being sexist. Now, it, since that happened, I've heard a lot of different examples which I, I do agree with I, I didn't realize this but 
you know, you know, Nadal's got like guns on him, right? Like, so like I've seen him switch out his shirt or uh, even Sampras back in the day when they're all sweaty. And apparently it's either some of the opens. I don't remember which, which opens, but apparently women can't do that with their sports bra. It's like considered like unladylike or something. So like, I, I, I do agree there's some sex, uh, sexism going on, but like in this case, I, I do think like, and I agree with you, Serena's a big competitor, but it's kind of like sour grapes. So the example I did want to bring up to you, this, this almost to a T reminds me of the whole Draymond Green LeBron uh, incident in the finals. So wait, before so before I get into you, are you a Draymond fan or not? No, not at all. Okay, <laughs> okay. So I, let's how do I put this? I respect his game for what he does. Like if he was on my team, I would respect him. But I think everyone probably despised him the most. Just. I mean, this is the reason why I don't like LeBron, but, um, you know, you see Draymond kind of complains to the refs nonstop, berate them, um, always talking. And, you and you know, for me specifically, when I see LeBron, the best player in the world, who's a locomotive, although he gets, you know, fouled nonstop, I just don't want to see him complain all the time. Like, um, and the only example I could drop is like Jordan, right? Like, and again, maybe there's less coverage, maybe there's less social media, et cetera. Maybe I didn't see it or maybe I was too young to see it. But like, you know, the fouls were harder back then. And I don't know if I saw like Michael Jordan constantly complaining to the refs, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. So my example with the game seven uh, Warriors Cavs, what, two, three, two, three years ago. Um, when, when the Warriors had that run. Now, I, I don't remember, I don't, my memory is not exactly, um, accurate, but I could have sworn Draymond didn't get suspended for that crotch shot specifically. He got suspended because that was a technical that was the 13th or 14th, whatever, in the playoffs that led to a suspension. Regardless, um, everyone was kind of complaining because this is the finals. You don't want to call that. You want the best versus the best. And while I agree with all that, and again, I'm not the biggest Draymond fan either. You know, part of me just says he should have just been more respectful. Like he he should have known his situation. And you know, a lot of the a lot of the narrative is basically Draymond is passionate, and you kind of get the good with the bad. So I, I kind of that's exact example that I thought with Serena. Like the reason why she's go, so good is she is so passionate. But with that, you do you do get that 2009 incident, the U.S. Open. You get you know some of these really fierce kind of things. Um, I just, I don't watch enough tennis to see if other people have these kind of um, stereotypes and reputations with them, right? Like kind of berating a ref or, you know, saying I'll, I'll, I'll throw this ball down your throat or something like that. Um, so what do you think about that Draymond example? Do you think it's like accurate to compare it to Serena's situation? I think it's, I think it's pretty, you know, accurate in comparison. I think the, the difference with Draymond is that he's, I feel like he's constantly, like I personally okay. watching, watching him play, I think he should get ejected from every single game <laughs> okay. for like the amount of, for the amount of, uh, amount that he gets away with, with the officials and kind of. I watched the finals and I mean, I'm literally there watching and I'm like, this guy should be ejected from every single one of these games for the amount of mouth he gives to the officials. And it, it's like, it's, it's unbelievable to me. And, you know, so when I watched that, I'm like, okay, it, you know, it might be similar based on like the violation type deal or the specific violation. But when I look at this Serena thing, I see two, I see one very specific violation according to like the rules, which is, you know, smashing the racket and then two very very um, big judgment type calls where, yeah, he, he looks up at the coach and he says, okay, I'm going to dock you for or give you a warning because he's coaching you. And then the last one, which ends up being like obviously the most costly, turns out to be uh, the one where he gets her for, you know, I guess, um, mouthing off to him, you know, or disrespect. I forget what the exact um, wording of it was. But to me, it's like two very big judgment calls on his part. And I just think that in that type of situation, 
situation, it's completely unnecessary. I think you got to kind of sit back. And obviously, if you're a fan of Serena or, you know, any athlete, professional athlete, you know, you always want to see them conducting themselves in the most professional way. But I think at the same time, it's really tough. Like when you're in that moment and you feel like something was literally taken from you and it's completely out of, out of your control. Um, now, let me ask so, you this. I always think of these kind of fanciful kind of things. Now, I, I think you'd agree with me. Like uh, Osaka was kind of, she's kind of crushing Serena, basically that whole match. Would you agree with that? Well, yeah, she beat her up pretty good in the first set. And then, um, you know, it was, it was closer in the second set though. And, you know, for me, it's like at that point when he took the point away from um, Serena, like it was close enough that Serena, as great as she is, she could have overcome that second set. And then if she wins the second set, I just feel like she probably wins the third set because it's Serena Williams. Like, that's just kind of, I guess, like what I would give her um, the type of respect, I guess, I would give her for her body of work throughout the years versus kind of what, you know, Osaka's done. And so it, it, I think it was close enough in that second set that if that point's not taken away, maybe she wins that second set. And if she does, I think she probably wins the third set. That's just me. So Andy, let me ask you this hypothetical piece. Again, I love hypotheticals. If Osaka, right when the uh, umpire uh, awards Osaka a set, so I think it's 5-3, I think. I think it was 4-3. Uh, it was, it, gave her yeah. A set. What's it? Uh, I, be- I believe it was 5. I, I believe it was 4-3 at the time. Or, and then, and then they it. gave her a set. So let me ask you this. If Osaka at 5-3 was like, oh, I feel bad for Serena. Let me smash three rackets in a row and I'll give her a set. She would have come off really bad or really good. Uh, I mean, I just don't think that's anything you do. Yeah. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, you know, I, yeah. yeah, I don't think that I can't see it happening. It's just she knew that she was fortunate to be like in the position she was sure at that point as it is. So it's like any little thing that I guess kind of takes Serena off of her game and maybe gives her a little bit of an up. I mean, she probably wouldn't want to say it, but I mean, I'm <laughs> sure she probably knew that that was going to be a really tough match going against Serena. I think that Serena is like her idol. You know what I mean? And, yeah, I, you I, know, I, I just think that she kind of while she didn't want to show how she felt about it. I mean, she knows it's a tough situation, but I mean, if she gets a chance to win her first major, um, I, you know, I don't think she's going to do anything to kind of change that. You know what I mean? Okay. I mean, let's close up this topic um, with this fun exercise. I, I, I almost assume we're going to be totally on opposite sides of the spectrum, but let's let's assign blame to this whole thing. Uh, we, I guess we'll both agree that we 0% blame on Osaka, obviously. So for Ramos, the umpire from 0 to 100%, how much blame does he get for this whole thing? I mean, I'll give him, jeez, I think it's like 80% of the blame. I, I think that you're, okay. I, I expect him to close his ears and not inter, you know, insert himself that okay. much into such an important match. That's I mean, me. yeah, totally agree. I, again, I, I, I think you're totally justified. I, I, I lean more towards like 30 25 percent um again watching almost probably too much coverage to admit I, apparently this guy has an amazing track record this is his first women's final and he's done like a bunch of the guys final but like everyone just had glowing things to say about him so like it's very unusual but i mean again it, it's great that we have different perspectives on this and then how much percent would you give it on uh, serena for her part i mean i would probably i would probably go like 80 20 i think that i think it's ridiculous that he called her out in the first place and i think that that's kind of what i give her the 20 percent for you know maybe 10 percent for smashing her racket frustration and 10% for just kind of not letting it go. Okay. Um, but I just think that it's, it's so hard in that situation when you're, when you're trying, you know, when you're competing and you just feel like now you're going against two people, you know what I mean? Not just one. Yeah, no, 
I agree. I agree. Uh, so let's let's switch let's switch topics. Let's jump into football. Um, Aaron Rodgers had this amazing comeback game against the Bears. Uh, was it Sunday night? Um, he had an injury to his knee. Comes back. He wins this dramatic game. And normally I would say dramatic, but coming as a New England Patriots fan, when Brady came back against the Jags, and then obviously against the Falcons, it's like. First game of the season. Granted, when I was watching him, I thought they had no chance. I thought he had no chance to come back, and then I know I thought he, to actually get on the field, and then I thought they had no chance to win it. But um, I guess that's Aaron Rodgers, and then uh, Brady Patriots do their thing. This somewhat um, hyped Houston Texans team, Patriots just do their thing. They went out, and then. Drew Brees, kind of that trinity of uh, high-quality quarterbacks. He has an amazing game stat-wise, but that defense doesn't look good in uh, Ryan Fitzmatch. Uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick kind of uh, goes gangbusters, and um, the Bucks take out the Saints. So, Andy, I want to ask you, this fun game, kind of like that uh, MFK game, but we're going to go with the uh, start bench cut. After this game one, how do you feel about Brady, Rodgers, and Breeze? Who would you start, who would you bench, and who would you cut? Uh, I think I would always start Aaron Rodgers. Okay. Um, uh, I mean, I just think that he's the most talented quarterback. I mean, you look at and that's, and I don't mean anything uh, against Tom Brady by any stretch. I mean, the guy is obviously you know, in the conversation, if not the greatest. You know, and But Aaron Rodgers, just talent-wise, I mean, I always kind of look at him I'm like, man, if Aaron Rodgers had Bill Belichick as his head coach, <laughs> It'd be interesting for me to see because those two guys have been kind of linked together, um, Belichick and, and Brady, throughout their entire careers. And for me, it would be it, it would be very interesting, I think, if, if it had been flipped a little bit and Aaron Rodgers was with Bill Belichick and the way he kind of runs things. So I would I would go with Aaron Rodgers, um, and then I think you know I'd have to probably bench Brady. I, I, and as bad as it is, I mean, as much as I love Drew Brees, I mean, I would probably put him third and cut him on. That one. Okay, I think for I, I would think most America would actually have it that way, regardless. Um, again, for I think when people watch that Rogers comeback, I think there's like half America that's not surprised at all. Then there's another half that just surprisingly who doubted Aaron Rodgers just became believers, and you know they witnessed an amazing comeback. Um, you know, a lot of people have Brady as what best quarterback, best player of all time. How can he be the best player if now there's the conversation that Aaron Rodgers is the best quarterback of all time? Do you buy yeah. any credence into that? Yeah, I think it's really hard because I think, like I said, I think that people get caught up with linking Brady with Belichick. It's like, is Belichick the greatest coach of all time? You know, I think that he's like in that conversation. So somebody kind of, you have to wonder about somebody, right? Is it like, is Brady making Belichick or is Belichick? making Brady, you know, and so Andy, I let, think, let me, yeah, let me pause for a second. Please. I, I, every time I think of these three, Brady, Belichick, Rogers, again, I'm more of a basketball guy, but I think of replace Brady with Jordan, replace Belichick with Phil Jackson, replace Rogers with LeBron. Do you think that's just more or less the same exact example? Cause you always link Mike. Do you think Brady is more linked to Belichick than Jordan is linked to Phil Jackson or because Phil Jackson had that Lakers run. There's kind of more of a separation. I think there's a little more set separation because I think in basketball, you le- you need less parts to do Got what they have to do in football. So like most of the NFL teams, like there's going to be ups and downs. I mean, you're going to see some 
some fluctuation because, um, you know, number one, the salary cap, you have to do so many different things to try to put like 55 to 60 players on a field and continue to win with them. And I just think that what Belichick has done because of that, it's like, you know, Phil, Phil Jackson's had, he had, you know, arguably the greatest players of all time. I mean, when you look at that, and I'm not trying to knock what he's done, but when you talk about having to like flex out 55 to 60 players like you do on a football roster, you just happen to see all these other teams go up and down while the Patriots just seem to be like up all the time. And they've, they've seemed to do that even. They've seemed to win even when, you know, Brady's had a couple injuries and it's like the backup quarterback come in and even if they're not great backup quarterbacks, they've actually done well with the Patriots. Now, they may not have won a Super Bowl, but they've been, you know, there. They've competed. They've been, you know, in the running for it. And, you know, you look at like a guy like Matt Castle, for example, he, he played pretty well when he was with uh, the Patriots when he cut, when he filled in for Brady. And then he went to the Chiefs and then the Cowboys. He's kind of bounced around the rest of the NFL and like he can't win. He's terrible. So you, you kind of, I, I think it's kind of both. I mean, I think Brady fits so well into what they do there and he's a great quarterback, but we've never had to see him without Bill Belichick on those teams that just seem to win all the time. So, uh, so it, it, yeah, I think it's different. Yeah. Let me ask you this quick, just so I understand your position. Um, so again, NFL coaches have more of an effect for the team and the win, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and I think you kind of correctly said Phil Jackson's always been linked to a, you know, a top five player of all time thus linked to a success. So then somebody like Greg Popovich, where he's done it over a long run, you can argue the quality of his players. I, w- I would probably argue Phil Jackson's probably had better players than Popovich, you know, average per year. Then does that make Popovich a better coach than Phil Jackson? Yeah, I if think that's a really, I think that's a really great uh, comparison because I feel like Popovich does do it very, in a very similar way to the way that Belichick does, where it's kind of all about like a specific system almost, and if the players buy into that system and they're the right players that fit into that system, he's going to be successful all the time. And you kind of see San Antonio there all the time. So, um, yeah, I think it's a good argument. I mean, you know, it's tough. Again, it's tough to argue with the final result of what, you know, guys like Phil Jackson have done. But I think Popovich has definitely got to be right there. I mean, you know, he's been kind of doing it um, without LeBron and without Jordan and without Kobe and, you know, so for me, it's really impressive what he's done. And I mean, I'm just, I guess I'm a huge, huge Belichick fan. I mean, I just think the guy's a genius the way he does things. So, and that's tough for me to say, obviously, as a Cowboys <laughs> fan, I wish that he was, uh, you know, the, the Cowboys head coach, but that's a whole other story. So, And, and just to be clear, Andy, are, are you specifically saying he's the best coach in um, not, giving, not giving him credit for his GM skills? A lot of people have knocked his GM skills. And, you know, there's very few coaches in the NFL that have that shared GM coach responsibility. So are you are you totally saying that he's a good coach and not, um, like, what, an average or maybe below average GM? Or are you combining those two? Oh, I think Belichick's probably the best GM in the NFL. I wow. mean, I, I think I think he's the best GM because he he happens he finds a way of getting things out of players that nobody gets anything out of. And not only that, I mean, if you look at like the careers of some of the guys that he happens to bring in, he knows like which players are going to fit perfectly into his system. And even if they were not successful players prior to coming to his team, it's like, you know, like Deion Lewis, for example, or, you know, just some of the running backs that he, that he kind of mixes in, um, like Eric Blunt. You know, these guys were like unbelievable 
on the Patriots. But every time they kind of go somewhere else, they're not nearly kind of what they are with the Patriots. It's almost like he kind of turns them into these, you know, these great players, and it's because of the system that they're fitting into. And outside of that, you don't really see them anywhere near successful. I think that it's like he finds his players, he finds where he can get the best bargain for a certain player, and when it's time for a specific player's contract to come up and he knows that he can't pay them, he's willing to let them go and bring in somebody that resembles them. Kind of like what happened with uh, Wes Welker and uh, Julian Edelman. And, you know, Wes Welker was kind of getting a little bit up there in age and Belichick was like, okay, well, this guy's been killing it for us his entire career, um, but now we've got this other guy that we've been de- developing here and Julian Edelman, and he's going to be the next West, uh, West Welker. And he kind of lets him go and kind of starts from, from scratch. So I think when you come, when you talk about him being a GM and a head coach, I think that with him, it, it, it all ties together because he's handpicking his players and knowing that they're going to fit into his system. And more times than not, I mean, he's pretty much right almost all the time. So, Andy, you know I can, I can listen to Patriots praise all day, but – um, we'll switch topics after this. I, I, I was talking to a friend over the weekend where it's really hard to assess this whole kind of drama with Jimmy G, right? Um, I, you know, that would have been the ultimate test for both Brady and Belichick, right? To, to see who, who could be successful without the other, right? So if right. I, I, I'm of this belief that if Jimmy G, uh, succeed, uh, no, no, I'm sorry. If Jimmy G flop, then, um, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Let me, let me rephrase that if if we had if we had got Jimmy G and the Patriots sucked people would have said it was Brady not Belichick if we got Jimmy G and he's successful with the Patriots they would have said Belichick can do it with any quarterback any quality quarterback is more Belichick than Brady well, so I'm trying to, you know, we just had week one and we saw how the 49ers did against the Vikings, but I'm trying to see if Jimmy G is really successful, would, then we'll have somewhat buyer's remorse. Will, will, will people have said, you know, we should have kept Jimmy G and traded Brady or did whatever? Or if Jimmy G sucks, will then all the Brady lovers say, see, we, we, we made the right choice. We, we trade Jimmy G. We, you know, we at least got some value for trading him rather than paying him, you know, franchise tag, et cetera. Um, so I guess my question is, you know, it, I always ask if Danny Ainge was the GM of the Patriots, right? Where he's like, what, cutthroat? Where obvious choice would have been to keep Jimmy G and then trade away Brady. Um, do you think, would you have done that? If, if, if you, you seem to be such a Belichick believer, would that have been the right move to keep Jimmy G and trade Brady? Um, I think the reason Belichick wanted to keep Jimmy G so much was because I think that Belichick believed that Jimmy G was going to be the next Brady. Um, but, and I'll probably upset some people by saying what I'm going to say, but I do believe that Jimmy G probably would have been the next Brady if he had stayed with the Patriots. I'm not so sure that he'll be the next Brady with the 49ers. I think that, you know, Belichick basically had Jimmy G and he developed him and he kind of, you know, brought him into kind of the Patriots system and, you know, what they're going to do over there to be successful. And I think that he was very confident that Jimmy G was going to be that guy because he had a few years with him to kind of see what he was made of and kind of see that he could do a lot of the things that Brady could do. And then, you know, he lost them. So I do think that Jimmy G could have probably been that guy. So, but I do think that Belichick will find another guy. I think that Belichick will find another guy to slide in there. And, you know, I don't know if they will be 
Tom Brady from start to finish, but I think that they will win. And I think that they'll be, you know, very successful once he kind of commits to that guy. Okay. If that makes sense. No, no, it does. So just a conclusion, Belichick, best coach of all time, best GM of all time? I mean, I personally think he is. And I mean, I haven't, I, I haven't seen anybody in my lifetime that I think is better than him. I mean, you know, just what he's done. You know, I guess there'll be arguments for some of the old-time coaches. Um, but personally, with the rules of today's NFL, with the salary cap of today's NFL, um, I guess like free agency and just the major differences that you have now versus what you had like in the old times, um, I don't know who's better than Belichick. That's just my opinion. I think the guy is like unbelievable. Brady Rogers, who's the best quarterback of all time? I mean, I think right now Brady is. Um, okay. I think talent-wise, I think I think talent-wise, I mean, I think that right now it's like, you know, I think Brady and Peyton are still just overall numbers-wise, those guys, because their careers are almost over, um, Rodgers still has a little bit of time to go. Um, but, you know, I think the conversation also is like, man, what would Peyton have done if he had been with Belichick his entire career? I just think that that's like a huge, huge difference because, I mean, Peyton did things as an NFL quarterback that, like, we've never seen before. And I think that he gets kind of lost in a little bit because some of his teams didn't, you know, win or he may not have come through, I guess, like every time, like the way that, uh, you know, some of the teams, and, and you can't even really say that the Patriots, you know, they're there all the time. I guess that's what I'm saying. Um, they haven't won all the time, but yeah, I guess just being there all the time is pretty impressive. Um, but I think that, you know, you look at what Peyton Manning did in his career. I mean, he's got to still be in that conversation. It's like, man, I wish you could somehow see what Brady and or what uh, Peyton Manning and what Aaron Rodgers would be with Bill Belichick. But it's, to me, it's like, man, Tom Brady was that guy. And I think the only way to really compare it will be to see who the next person that really takes over that starting quarterback role with the Patriots. If it's kind of similar to like what happened with Brady and see what that quarterback does. So and the last know. thing. I'll Last yeah. thing. Um, so, do you know how much Bill Belichick makes? Uh, off the top of my head, I don't know. Would you say more or less than seven million? Ah, uh, geez, I know that. I'm pretty sure that he's not the highest paid coach in the NFL. So, I mean, I know, for example, I know Gruden makes more than <laughs> that's, Belichick. That's, so, that's the exact direction I was heading. So, Bill Belichick makes seven point five million, and I had this. This was my position the whole time when the Gruden signing came out. So, Gruden making ten million a year for ten years, right? Mm-hmm. I I told myself those guys aren't about winning they're about making a splash I'm talking about the Raiders um, that's my opinion because the thought is sure I mean I don't think Belichick would go for 10 million but it, if you're willing to give like, I guess do you think the Raiders offered Bill Belichick that same contract yes or no even if you assume do that I, you're going to say no do you think they offered that same deal to him like this year you mean uh, before they signed Gruden for before they signed Gruden like if you were well, going to offer Gruden 10 for 10 why wouldn't you have offered Belichick that same thing if not more well I guess the only thing is I mean, did they would they even have permission to offer Belichick that? I mean, That's I, like I don't know it's because I think that the big thing is like obviously if Belichick's like under contract, then he, I think the way that goes is like you'd have to be you'd have to get permission to potentially discuss those types of things with another organization. But, but I guess I guess my point I, is yeah. Gruden I think will never live up to that contract. I, I've almost joked with my friends that I don't think he'll even make it past five or six years of that contract. 
And I, I, I don't know if I completely agree with your, your praise for Belichick. I mean, I love the guy. It's, it's hard to think in my lifetime I'm seeing the best coach, which I, I think the numbers show it, but it just blows my mind because you look at guys like Saban and their sports and stuff like that, then I would almost argue that Belichick's underpaid, right? Because, I mean, some coaches that don't do the GM position, you know, are, are around 7.5 or whatever. And so, like, I, I, I'm somewhat surprised that he's doing I'm, – I'm somewhat surprised he's so content with what he's getting paid given he's the best of all time, right? Right. Brady has an excuse, right? He says that, you know, makes his team better. Coaches aren't part of the salary cap. So, you know, skies should really be the limit. And if you're saying he's the best of all time, he should almost always be the highest paid, don't you think? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I think like in a perfect world, yes. But I mean, okay. Belichick to me is like definitely underpaid. But I okay. think that the way that the way that the sports world is now, it's like it changes every year. Like the highest paid player today is not going to be the highest paid player tomorrow. And like that kind of falls on that player for negotiating their contract a certain way when they get a chance to negotiate it. For example, like, you know, Matt Stafford last season was the highest paid quarterback in NFL history. And I think pretty much anyone would agree that Matt Stafford's not the greatest quarterback of all time. I mean, he's not even like anywhere in the in the conversation. Like, but he's, you know, a good enough quarterback. He's a franchise quarterback. He's a guy that, you know, he's going to probably win you some games. He's not the best quarterback. He's not going to, you know, he's not necessarily going to, you know, beat Brady and Rodgers and all those guys when like the chips are stacked but the Detroit Lions felt comfortable enough that he was going to be their guy for the next seven eight years or whatever the contract was well and they felt I see your point there but my only disagreement there is when you talk players that sort of allows GMs to plan like hey we've locked in Katie we've locked in these are like the cornerstones of our team so we could plan again you know football way more than me we can plan what needs we have for our our linemen or our defense etc etc I, I guess for coaches, I mean, again, since it never really hits your cap, to my knowledge, like, you should theoretically be able to, re- like, as soon as the Gruden contract landed, Belichick or Belichick's agent should have been like, uh, you're paying me $11 million tomorrow. Like, I, I guess I'm just surprised because, like, you know, coaches are outside the salary cap. It, it's it's kind of just extra money that owners should kind of just give them, but... In theory, yes, but did he... Okay. Well, yeah, I agree with you 100%. I mean, Belichick should be the highest paid coach in the NFL. There's no question. Like, but did he ask for it? You know what I mean? did he did his GM or did his agent go and say you know he needs to be the highest paid coach I mean there's no question that he should be the highest paid coach I mean for what he does on the field let alone what he does as a GM of the team I mean there's no replacing him really I mean you'd have to replace Belichick with like four or five people to to get even a product that would probably be second best to what he's doing by himself almost so, it's so like, Andy, you're, you're Cowboys. How much, if you were Jerry Jones for a day, how, how much would you offer Bill Belichick? Oh, my God. Whatever. I mean, it, I might hand him a blank check. I mean, that's how much Jerry Jones, wow. that's how much money Jerry Jones has. But Jerry Jones will never um, give any enough credit to anybody else to get a coach like Bill Belichick. Um, I mean, he basically, you know, we know what he did with Jimmy Johnson and Bill Parcells. I mean, it, he had two great coaches. And yet the longest tenured coach under his um, ownership is Jason Garrett, who, um, I, you know, I, I don't really have a ton to say about. <laughs> But we'll leave it there. Well, well, we're talking about credit that you were just talking about. Um, I, I don't know if I'm, I should give the Jets too much credit or maybe the Lions are just kind of garbage this year. But I'm watching last night, last night, Monday night football game, and I'm, I'm watching the Jets put up like a college basketball score of 48 points. And I'm like, is this kid, uh, is this kid Sam Darnold like the real thing? Um, 
I kid you not, I almost fell off my seat when I saw him throw that pick six the first play of the game. And I don't know. I, again, I can't take away is, are, the, are the Jets legit or are the Lions just that bad? What do you take away from this 48-17 shellacking by the, from the Jets? Yeah, I think it's like one of those deals where it's like week one and – Week one is probably going to be close to the least accurate week of the season because a lot of these guys don't even play. We talked about this last week, but a lot of the starters, the best players in the league, don't even play really in preseason. So I think teams are still trying to like get everything together and trying to figure themselves out in week one. Probably week one, week two, week three. I think week weeks one through three are probably like teams just trying to gel together. I mean, Sam Darnold probably got a ton more playing time than a lot of uh, starting NFL quarterbacks because as a rookie, I mean, they're trying to figure out what they've got and get him to learn the system and all that. So, I mean, he may have had that going for him. I mean, he may end up being a great quarterback, but I'm not quite 100%, I guess, sold on the Jets overall yet. Uh, you know, I don't think they're quite as good, and I don't think that Detroit's quite as bad as what we saw last night. I think um, it'll probably be somewhere maybe a little bit more in the middle. I think the Jets did look very good. And, they're going to have a tough time replicating what they did last night, though. Out of curiosity, before the season started, how did you have those four rookie quarterbacks, Mayfield, Rosen, Darnold, uh, who am I missing? Josh Allen. How did you have those four? Um, I would personally think Baker Mayfield would be one. I, I just think that the guy's a winner. I think he's like, he can get in there and make things happen. Um, I would probably put him slightly ahead of uh, of Darnold. Darnold. And, okay. and probably slightly ahead. I think I would probably put Rosen and Darnold very close. Uh, oh, okay. I'm not really sure. I think they would be very close. I think Josh Allen is, he's going to have to, I think he needs a lot more developing in in terms of like he's just he was the most inaccurate passing quarterback in college and I think that the quarterback coaches probably have to get with him a ton and work on some of his mechanics and kind of straighten him out a little bit I think they knew he was probably going to be a little bit more of a project but um, just overall like talent and skill wise Josh Allen's like a monster I mean the, the guy could potentially be like unbelievable but I wouldn't think that he would necessarily be the most ready I think that Baker Mayfield and probably somewhere between Josh Rosen and Sam Darnold would probably be closest to being ready. And then Lamar Jackson, obviously, I think he's kind of similar to Josh Allen, where I think the accuracy thing is a question with him. Um, and, you know, obviously he's got a ton of tools that nobody besides like Mike Vick has had coming into the NFL. But I think that, you know, development-wise, they want to kind of let him develop a little bit more before they kind of throw him out there. 40-point games uh, and Colin Coward, I think, has the Ravens as the number one team after week one. You have this blowout. I mean, I knew the Bills were bad, but I didn't know they were this bad. And with a score like 47-3 to by the Ravens, I don't know to take away if Joe Flacco's back and uh, or if, if Lamar Jackson was in there, he would have scored 40 points as well, and the Bills are that bad. Um, or the Bills' offense is that anemic, and they can't put up points, and they just give the, Bill, uh, the Ravens more opportunities, thus they put up 47 points. I mean, are we overreacting to how good the Ravens are or how bad the Bills are, or do you think this is right? Yeah, I think it's probably like I think I think everything is going to be a little bit of an overreaction in Week One. I think I think the Ravens are probably pretty good. I mean, they were they were a good team last year. I think that they needed to work out some kinks offensively. I think their defense is usually pretty tough, um, but I think that they kind of like ran into a Buffalo Bills team that's completely off the tracks right now. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know why the Bills were starting Peterman in the first place. I think that they like don't have a plan. Like, the guy started one game last season and threw five interceptions in the first half, so... 
I'm not really sure like what they thought they were going to get out of him. He, he's like he's never really looked like an NFL starting quarterback, but they don't feel Josh Allen's ready yet. So I guess they were stuck in that situation after letting Terod Taylor go. But I think the Ravens will probably have a more realistic matchup, um, you know, over the coming weeks to see what they are. But yeah, I mean, any team that kind of puts a beating on another NFL team like that, it's like you've got to be pretty impressed and like raise an eyebrow because you just don't see that in the NFL with, with the amount of parity there is in the NFL these days. Well, sticking with AFC North, um, I don't remember who you picked uh, last week's podcast to come out of the AFC North, but um, I know everyone loves the Steelers. Uh, how do you see the AFC North coming, seeing that the Steelers tie the Browns? Uh, are the Steelers as good as the Ravens? Are the Ravens as good as the Steelers? Or how do you look, look at the AFC North? Well, I think after week one alone, I mean, I think you'd have to probably, um, you got to look at the Steelers also without Le'Veon Bell. I mean, I know that Connor did a great job in filling in for him, but Le'Veon Bell is probably the most talented running back in the NFL, and he's not with them right now. So, um, I, I still think uh, I think it was very close last year. I think it was very close between the Bills, uh, between the Steelers and the Ravens, and it's very possible that the Ravens could have you know jumped the Steelers, and maybe the Ravens are a little bit better than them right now. So I think I I think last week I probably said I still thought it was like the Steelers' division to lose, but I mean after week one, obviously questions are going to be out there because the Ravens absolutely destroyed their their opponent, and and the Steelers almost lost. They probably should have lost. The Browns and and I'm not sure that's even really like a terrible thing. I, I thought the Browns were going to be pretty competitive this year. I mean, they've got a ton of talent on that team. So if they put it all together, the Browns could be pretty competitive this year. So, um, I, you know, more surprising because the Browns never win. They still found a way to not win this past weekend. But um, yeah, I mean, maybe the Ravens kind of leapfrogged them. So I won't lie, I didn't watch much of the Steelers game. I just I thought that game. I thought they should have crushed the Browns, but I guess I was wrong there. But is this guy? Kind are legit can he do what 80 90 percent of what bell can do or you think this was just a one game kind of thing i think he might be like legit i think he's a good running back i think he's done well when filling in but i don't i, I don't think that Le'Veon bell is like somebody that you could just replace on like uh um you know for a full season for example i think yeah he may have some good games filling in but what Le'Veon bell does that's like so impressive week in and week out is like he contributes like all over the field i mean he's in the backfield. They put him out at wide receiver. They put him in the slot. They, they kind of like move him all over the place. He's never down back. Um, and I think Connor can probably do some of that. But I think to believe that he can absolutely replicate exactly what Le'Veon Bell does all the time, then we're basically saying that, you know, Connor is the next best back in the NFL. And I think we have to see a few more weeks um, or a lot more of him doing that same thing before we can really say that. She just dawned on me one of the topics that I wanted to hit was the Khalil Mack trade, but we can actually transition into it from this Le'Veon Bell kind of holdout. How do you see this playing out? I mean, do you see, um, I actually I actually don't know who the GM of the Steelers are, but do you see it getting to a point where, you know, I think people keep on talking about week 10 with Le'Veon Bell. Do you see it getting to a point if Connor's doing a good enough job, if not a great job, where they're just going to cut ties with Le'Veon Bell and trade them, get as much value as they can, and some team will just get the number one, number two running back in the league and give up some picks like kind of almost as um, profound as how Cleo Mack is on defense and, you know, traded for a bunch of picks or 
Yeah, I don't know because it doesn't look like it doesn't look like the Steelers are willing to pay Bell what he wants, anything close to what he wants, I guess. And you have to look at, I guess, like what the what the market is for a running back. Like it's a very different position than like if you're trading for like a all pro linebacker or an all pro quarterback. I I just don't think that teams are willing to like give as much for the running back as they are for these other positions. And I think when you're looking at it, like I almost don't think the Steelers are completely wrong to not just throw every bit of money at. I mean, I guess I'm very conservative when it comes to certain positions on the field. I know what Le'Veon Bell is. I know that he's like them. He's he's arguably the best running back in the NFL. But I personally think that that's a position that you can't overpay for because there's too many other positions on the field that are crazy important, like paying for like a Cleo Mack, for example. Like I would have paid Cleo Mack. You know what I mean? I just think he's such a game changer that that position on the field um, is extremely important to take care of. So I think that they may end up having to trade him um, or they're going to have him and they're not going to you know, have him on the field. So I don't really know. It just seems like they haven't really been willing to do either. So I'm not really sure, I guess, like what the Steelers' complete stance is at this point. Just like they're going to be okay with not having him play. I don't know. I mean, it's a tricky one, I guess. So Andy, yeah, let's talk about this Quill Mac trade because um, obviously everyone's saying this is going to come down to the worst trade in history. Um, Khalil Mack, you know, Hall, Hall of Fame level type player. Um, so remind me again, what was the Khalil Mack? Um, what was his contract like? What did they What did they end up paying for him? What were the trade? Um, or so he was, I'm sorry. So he was a free agent at the end of last year. Yeah. So well, I guess he wanted a new contract. And so how many years did he have left on his contract? I guess. Do you know? Uh, off the top of my head, I don't know what he had left on there, but I think that he wanted to be negotiating a new contract. So. But from what I understand is that they didn't want to pay him, I guess, like what he wanted from an extension. Like, I, so off the top of my head, I don't know exactly what his contract was prior to getting traded, but I know that he wanted a new contract extension and that the Raiders weren't willing to do it. And that's kind of why they ended up get going to where he was or okay. why they ended up doing what they did. So the reason why I asked you that is because it's funny because we just talked about your favorite coach, Bill Belichick. So I recall that uh, the stereotype with the Patriots is that they never pay players. Players, right, they cut ties with them right before you know they make big contracts and stuff like that. And so I think everyone points to the Richard Seymour kind of um, situation where that's probably people say that Bill, Bill Belichick kind of makes the right decisions right when um, the players start going down or a year before they start going down. But Richard Seymour seems to be the only example where he might have cut ties a little bit too early that uh, we should have kept him or something. Um, I don't know revisionist history, how that trade played out, but do you think there's any possibility of a chance that Gruden made the right chance, like in the, with like the Richard Seymour, or could you point to another example where it did pan out, where you trade out like a really good player for picks? Um, I think we'll have to see because I don't think you'll know until it, like at least a few years from now. I mean, for example... We know what Khalil Mack is right now. I mean, we saw what he did in his first game with the Bears. I mean, he had an interception return, I believe, for a, a touchdown, and he had a forced fumble recovery and, and all that stuff. I mean, the guy is, like, unbelievable. He's, he's just one of the – you know, he's a potential Hall of Fame player. He's 27 years old, and he's a game changer on defense and one of the most important positions on defense. So the reason I say we don't really know like whether that's going to be a good or bad trade in the long run is because the Raiders do get a 2019 first round pick. They get a 2020 first round pick, a 2023 round pick, and a 2019 sixth round pick. So they, we have to see, I guess, who they take 
with those picks. Um, and it's going to obviously be the Bears picks, whatever position that ends up being in 2019 and 2020. So, you know, hey, if the Bears end up being, you know, I don't know, 6-10, and 10, they might get a top, you know, what, 11, top 11 pick or top 12 pick or something like that. And, you know, who knows? Maybe they get two two potential Khalil Mack type players um, with those picks. So, you know, right now it looked bad because the Raiders just got beat up um, and showed some signs of where they could have really used Khalil Mack. And obviously Khalil Mack dominated his game. So, you know, it's easy to look at it right now and be like, wow, man, Raiders messed up. But I think we have to see what the Raiders end up getting with those first round picks before we can completely kill him for it. But, you know, it was just crazy. They didn't want to pay him. And, I mean, he ends up signing a monster extension with the Bears for um, six years, $141 million. So, uh, apparently, that's what the Raiders weren't willing to do with the, with the guy. And, you know, only time will tell, I guess. So, Andy, just to put it into perspective, um, every time I hear about that kind of best player debate where, you know, they don't want to talk Brady or Montana or quarterback, everyone always inserts someone like a Lawrence Taylor. So, like, I don't know. Would you say Cleo Mack is a poor man's Lawrence Taylor, 90%. I mean, how impactful is the game? I know it's blasphemous for people to compare you know, any linebacker to Lawrence Taylor, but like, how would you compare those two players for historical context? I mean, I think that Khalil Mack is probably somewhat like similar what he does wow. like, okay. in game, but not, I mean, Lawrence Taylor like changed the game. <laughs> like he did things sure. that like you just didn't really see. I mean, that's the type of player that he was. And I don't think it's really, he's like one of those players where it's like, you know, I'm not really sure it's really fair to compare anybody to him. It's kind of, it's tough, you know, I mean, in his position, he was just at the top of the mountain and this guy is like modern days. He's a great, great defensive player where he's arguably the best in the game. And, you know, but it's hard to kind of, I guess, compare people to like Lawrence Taylor just based on like what he did at the time that he did it, I guess. So it's, you know, I think the, the one thing is that the, the one person that's really got a lot to lose by this really to me is John Gruden because sure. he just paid, you know, he just got this monster contract that's very controversial. Uh, and if he, traded Mac and now the Raiders go 4-12 and 12 this year. I mean, it's not going to look good while Khalil Mack wins Defensive Player of the Year and, and all that stuff. I mean, he's going to be expected to win. Gruden's going to be expected to win very soon and not necessarily this year, but obviously when you sign that big of a contract as a head coach, you know, the, the Raider fan base is probably like the mo- one of the most intense in sports, so they're going to expect a lot of big things and so I think that what they do with these two draft picks could be very important because if you can get somebody that's um, comparable and a potential all-pro player, not necessarily Hall of Famer, but, you know, you're you're basically replacing a Hall of Famer. So it's going to be interesting to see. Well, Andy, I almost thought actually the opposite. Um, I know it's, it's typical practice with at least an NBA where a GM will, I don't know, like trade a quality player right now for either picks or an overseas player. And so what that does as a GM, that buys them time, right? So like as a GM, you know, you tell your owner, hey, you know, you shouldn't judge me now or you shouldn't fire me or assess me now because when that overseas guy comes over or when that rookie really kind of blooms in the next three or four years, then you can judge me. So it kind of buys them time. You don't think that holds true for Gruden? Like you don't think he says, oh, with Cleo Mack, you would have had higher expectations for us in the short term. But with these draft picks out in the future, you need to give me an extra three or four years to really judge 
judge me? You don't, you don't, you don't buy that. I think that's possible. Like in the building, like when talking with like the GMs and like the ownership and all that stuff, but the fan base really wants to win right now. You know what I mean? Like they're, when it comes to like the pressure coming from the fan base and coming from the media and all that stuff, like he's going to get beat up on this trade until he's got those players like in his pocket because Khalil Mack, you know, unless he gets injured and, you know, it turns out to be like, oh, wow, okay, so it wasn't that big of a deal. Like Khalil Mack is going to continue dominating on the field and just showing why he's the type of player he is. So I think with, you know, the Raiders' ownership and within that conversation, I think that they probably understand that that, um, you know, that you look at it in the long run. But I think that there's a whole other type of pressure from fans and from the media where, you know, they could end up, what if they end up drafting like a major bust with those draft picks? Then you end up gave, you know, giving away this guy who's a potential um, a future Hall of Famer for nothing really, you know? So, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll have to see. I think you got to give him a little bit of time though. Let's, let's see what the Raiders do this year. I mean, maybe the Raiders end up being great. I mean, maybe they end up going to the playoffs. Who knows? I mean, I think that you do have to give them some time and see what they do get for this. So the fun question I, I have been asking people ever since that crude inciting is out of those 10 years, how many years do you think, how, mu- how many years of that contract do you think he'll fulfill? Uh, uh, it's so hard to say. I mean, I think he'll make, I think he'll have the team very competitive. I actually thought that he brought, just watching the game, I mean, you could tell that there's a lot of life out there. Um, I think he's an impressive coach. I think, you know, he won a Super Bowl. Uh, I think it comes down to how well he does in his first, like, four or five years, probably. And I think if he does really well throughout that four or five years, I mean, you know, maybe he sticks around. But I think it really comes down to, to what he wants to do. I mean, I don't know. It's probably a lot more glamorous thinking about getting back out there and coaching um, while you're like in the booth doing what he was doing. But he's also, that was a lot more cushy job, you know, doing Monday Night Football and, you know, I'm sure getting paid very well. And, you know, now he's back in coaching and he's going to be working 20 hours a day, you know, and that's a lot different once you're back out there. The honeymoon might get over a lot faster than he wanted it to, you know. That's a big commitment being a head coach in the NFL. Yeah, I I agree. I'm personally on the record. I don't think he'll make it past five years and I definitely I, I often joke with people do you think 100 million buys you a championship like is that the expectation that in 10 years Gruden will win a championship and I, I think people either expect or want that and I don't think he's going to come anywhere close unfortunately but that's just because expectations are um, too high um, so speaking of high expectations you uh, I don't think that I personally didn't have the bucks with any expectations um, I think a lot of people didn't think too highly of Ryan Fitzpatrick coming in um, and then on top of that, I, I do know I do know a fair share of people that lost in the, uh, their eliminator pool or the Tickums by um, assuming the Saints were going to beat the Bucks. I mean, so what do you do if you're the Bucks? Uh, like, I think Ryan Fitzpatrick has had spurts of good quarterback play, but he never he's never consistent throughout the whole season. And I don't know if the Bucks would assume that. But when you juggle that with kind of uh, Jameis Winston's bad uh, off the field record, I don't know. Like, what what do you do? I mean, I think. Uh, James Woodson's suspensions for four total games. So, like, depending on how Ryan Fitzpatrick plays, like, let, let's play the best case scenario. Say Ryan Fitz, Fitzpatrick. I don't know, not not forty points, whatever, but like, puts up great numbers for the next three games. What do you do if you're the Bucks? Yeah, I think the Bucks will like probably evaluate where they're at of time. I mean, I don't think they have. I think James Winston is like their he's their franchise quarterback. I don't think there's oh. like any question with that. But I also don't think that you know if the Bucks are four and zero, I don't think there's necessarily a rush 
to just throw Winston in there and say, you know, you're just because you're our franchise quarterback, you're starting right away. I think that once you get back from suspension, especially as a quarterback, there's going to be a little bit of time where like you have to get things back together. I mean, you've got to get everything down with the team, with the, with your receivers, with the, the playbook. And like, I think that there's enough of a window where they could probably swing it either way. I, I personally don't think Ryan Fitzpatrick's going to be 4-0. I mean, I think he's a decent quarterback. He's probably like among the best backup quarterbacks you'll ever get. I mean, I know I would have killed for the Cowboys to have him a couple of years ago when Romo got hurt. Um, but, um, you know, he's a very good backup quarterback. He has he shows signs at times where he plays lights out like he did this weekend. But then he can come out next, you know, next weekend and throw four interceptions. I mean, I think he's that type of quarterback. So if he's 4-0 when Winston comes back, I'll be very surprised. I don't think the Bucks. I still don't really think the Bucks are that great of a team. Um, but I don't know. I mean, NFL is weird these days. Anything could happen. But I don't think that they're going to like, I don't think the Bucks are going to throw away their, you know, hopes and dreams of Jameis Winston being their franchise quarterback um, after a few games where Ryan Fitzpatrick played well. And I need two numbers from you. I need two numbers from you. I need, what percent chance do you have that Jameis Winston starts on game five? Oh, man. Uh, you know, I think it's kind of like 50-50 for me. Wow. Because I, I don't think, I don't think that, I think it's just based off the fact of, you know, will he be 100% ready to start game five? Like, you know, is he, it's one of the suspension, like, for example, um, you know, like with Ezekiel Elliott yeah. last year, I mean, you know, you're not with the team for that long period of time. Like, I don't think as a starting quarterback, you show up to practice on, on say, if, you know, say if he comes back on like a Monday morning or whatever it is. I, I don't know how it works with him with the suspension, but so say week four game is played on Sunday. Then if Jameis Winston comes back on that Monday, for example, I don't know if he's going to be able to completely get 100% like ready to play that game, that week five game. It's for me, it's more of like that than anything else. I know, you know, the conversation is like, oh, well, you know, is that Fitzpatrick going to be starting because he's better? I mean, I don't really think Ryan Fitzpatrick is going to be like the better quarterback, like for the Bucks' future. I don't think anybody's really looking at that. But if he's 4-0, I mean, I don't see what the difference, you know, why not roll the dice and just let him start for at least one more week. So, um, it, it'll be interesting. I mean, I, I personally don't, I, I don't know that Winston will start right when he comes back. I mean, I think it, they might say, hey, well, let's get you out there and get you back on the field. But I don't think that they feel that way necessarily. So actually, for me, Andy, it's kind of like 50-50. Yeah. To your point, actually, they kind of lucked out. Guess what week the, the Tampa Bay Bucks have their bye week? Oh, is it week five? <laughs> yeah, it is week five. Oh, so wow. Week, yeah. So two weeks for Winston. Okay, so I guess the second question, the second number I was going to ask you for is, give me the percentage chance that Winston is not starting even on the Tampa Bay Bucks week 17. Oh, you think they're going to like possibly? Like, well, I, I want to hear your security level. You're saying 100% that Jameis Winston will be on the Bucks game 17? Yeah, I don't think there's any chance okay. they, they cut you would be shocked. or anything like that. I mean, You'd be shocked. I'd be 100% shocked. I mean, he's, you know, he was their, he's their top draft pick. I mean, he was their, you draft the guy there and he's like, he's your future quarterback for the next 10 to 12, 15 years. So well, well, I don't Andy, think I mean, anything... I w- this will probably hold another topic, hold another episode we can talk about, but you know, this whole, this whole Me Too movement, you kind of, you're kind of balancing two things, right? You're balancing how bad the stink is from your off the field stuff and then you're 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 
you're balancing how good you are on the field, right? Like the, the whole Ray Rice thing, I, I, I bet if he was a better running back, I mean, he might have gotten a look from another team. <clears throat> Obviously, Zeke, if he wasn't as good as he was, depending on what team he was playing for, some of that stuff could have got, you know. So I, 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 I guess my point is like, I don't know if more stuff is going to come out about him. Like his track record just keeps on growing. But if the, I think if he plays anywhere below average or if people say, you know, he's not that much better than Ryan Fitzpatrick, I think that's where I'd start to get worried. But then again, that's assuming that Ryan Fitzpatrick plays good. And that's assuming James Winston doesn't play good. So, you know, both of those I don't know. So Yeah, I mean, I don't think, um, yeah, we. I mean, without predicting the future of other potential things coming out about Winston being involved in stuff like this, I don't think that based off of what this thing is, not that it's not, you know, a problem that he did this, not that it's not serious, but I don't think that the Bucks will, would cut him over this. I think more would have to come out and it'd have to be a lot, you know, very serious um, for them to potentially cut him from the team and move on from him. I don't think that based off this situation that that would happen. Um, well, I guess I guess the last question with this topic, then I guess if Ryan Fitzpatrick plays, again, not like, like week one, but better than his, what, you know, historically he's played like, and Jameis Winston, I don't know, I don't want to say falls off a cliff, is only marginally better than what Ryan Fitzpatrick's playing at, if, if it's that close, and Jameis Winston obviously gets paid a lot more than Ryan Fitzpatrick, then do you think that would be a situation where the Bucks might reassess it or still no? No, I don't think that there's any chance the Bucks are even considering oh, okay. um, anything. I mean, that's just me. That, I don't sure, have, no, no, sure. it's not like, I, you know, without a crystal ball or anything like <laughs> that, but I mean, what Jameis Winston is, what is Jameis, Jameis Winston's 24 years old and uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick is what well, he's, he's in his, I believe, mid thirties. Um, yeah, he's pretty old. I got to look at that. He's 35. Okay. So okay, sure. Jameis Winston is their, their franchise quarterback at 24 years old. And Jameis Win and, uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick is, you know, a guy who's kind of like bounced around the NFL for years. And he's been kind of pretty, you know, decent at times and bad at times. Um, and, you know, Winston was their number one overall pick in the draft just a few years ago, 2015. So, I mean, personally, I don't think there's any chance that there's a thought in anybody's mind within the Bucks organization that they would be keeping Ryan Fitzpatrick over James Winston. I mean, Winston's been pretty good. He's been good at times, and he's been not so good at times. But at 24 years old, you've got a lot of time to continue developing and, sure. you know, and becoming the type of player that, you know, could be a generational type player. I mean, who knows? I mean, they that was their thought process when they drafted him number one, obviously. Speaking so, of a, a general type uh, – generational type of player. Uh, my boy, Pat Mahomes, he had this. I mean, I think I actually liken it to the way people talk about him, like how people go to watch Steph Curry's uh, shooting warm-ups. I mean, people talk about this guy's arm like he's, he's a god or something like that. And uh, they're talking like he'll almost have more highlights than quality wins. Kind of reminds me of um, Philip Rivers, the Chargers, right? That guy's got a rocket of an arm. It doesn't always, you know, he doesn't always game play the best. And sometimes, uh, like, the games kind of fall apart and he doesn't end up winning them, but he, he makes these miraculous throws, plays. Um, so that, that's sort of, oddly, that's sort of who I thought of when I thought of Pat Mahomes. But speaking of which, uh, you got Pat Mahomes winning this week one. You got Sam Darnold with that amazing game one of his rookie career. And then you got Goff, who 
I think this is his third year in the league. He looks pretty amazing uh, Monday night. So those are three really, really young uh, quarterbacks that all have amazing potential. Um, you already mentioned your boy Baker Mayfield, but just because these three have done it on the field so far. If we play that game, start, bench, cut with Mahomes, Darnold, and Goff, how, who do you like going where? Uh, I mean, I haven't seen enough from Mahomes yet. I mean, like, okay, he played great in this first game, and I know that everybody's been raving about him. So for him to throw, you know, for 256 yards, four touchdowns, and, um, you know, run a few times, and he looked great. Um, but I haven't seen enough from him and Darnold yet. I think Goff improved enough last year to where you're thinking, you know, he should potentially be, um, you know, uh, a big-time quarterback in the league. He was the number one overall draft pick, and I haven't really been, like, crazy impressed with Goff even last year. I mean, I think he was good, but he wasn't, like, you know, generational. I thought Carson Wentz was a lot better than um, Goff last year. But, jeez, oh, man, that's a tough one between these guys. Um, so if we're going with, with Goff, Mahomes, and you said Darnold, uh, I would probably start – right now I would probably start Goff, then Mahomes, and maybe cut Darnold. And the only reason I say that is because I just don't – I don't trust USC quarterbacks. <laughs> Um, they don't have the best track I mean, record, yeah. Yeah, I just don't trust USC quarterbacks at all. They always, like, I don't know. It's just, it's really weird. There's a really weird track record for USC is, quarterbacks that are supposed to be big-time players. Is it fair to say Carson Palmer is the best USC, or am I forgetting someone? Um, I think Carson Palmer is probably the best USC quarterback that has really um, had a success, successful um, NFL career. But, um, I mean, I personally don't think, I don't really think he was that great. I mean, like, I know he had moments where he was. I, I think good, that's my like, point. I think that's my yeah, point. Like, you go uh, Barkley, you go uh, Sanchez, you go Liner, and, like, I remember the hype surrounding all of those guys, especially Barkley. He was just, everyone thought really good things about Barkley um, when he was coming up. But, um, yeah. yeah, no, I agree with you about SC uh, quarterbacks. It's a little concerning if you go by that track record. But, um, yeah, none of them really seem to um, work out that great. I think, uh, you know, you have to go back to, like, Rodney Pete was a pretty decent quarterback. Back. I mean, but I mean, I guess Carson Palmer would probably arguably be the best to, to date. I mean, but yeah, I, I just, I don't know. I don't trust those guys. Like they just seem to not usually make it. Darnold had a good game last night for the most part. So hopefully he kind of changes that. But I think if you're looking at those three guys, I would probably put it in that order right now. So we're running short on time. Uh, it was a pretty amazing first week of football. I mean, I think combination of missing it so much, but I mean, truly, amazing games. You got a tie there. You got a comeback win with Aaron Rodgers. Um, you know, that really weird Rams-Raiders game where I thought I thought the Raiders were going to win and then all of a sudden, you know, everything fell off. Um, yeah, just a lot of great games going around. Um, purposely not talking about your Cowboys. As I, I somewhat reluctantly watched that game and it was kind of hard to watch. But uh, any closing thoughts on week one football? Any Anyone that really impressed you? Anyone that let you down? Or if you want to talk about your Cowboys? <laughs> Well, the Cowboys obviously let me down. I mean, they, they've been letting me down for years now, so I, I kind of almost immune to it at this point. Um, their defense looked very good, I thought, um, for the amount that they were on the field. Um, the quarterback play was just terrible, so I think that that's going to be the problem along with the coaching. But 
Um, so, yeah, I think they're going to struggle. I think that they're probably going to be somewhere in that, sadly, that 8-8 to area because they'll be decent defensively and they'll be not so great offensively, which is kind of a flip from what they had when, you know, when Romo was around and kind of carried the offense and their defense couldn't stop anybody. But um, aside from that, I mean, Washington was pretty impressive what they did to so, Arizona. Andy, just staying with your yeah. Cowboys, I, I think I yeah. know where you stand on this, but I just want to double check. So I guess I don't want to say your boy, Dak Prescott, but Dak Prescott, he uh, he becomes a free agent in 2020. If you're the GM of the Cowboys, what do you do? I mean, they need to they need to either sign a, a big-time free agent quarterback or they need to, to draft a first-round quarterback because I don't think that Dak is a franchise quarterback. And I don't think Dak's a franchise starting quarterback in the NFL. I, I just don't think he's accurate enough. I think watching, I think he caught a lot of teams off guard in his rookie season. They were, you know, prepared for one thing with Romo, and then Dak gets kind of thrown in there, and he's extremely mobile and does a lot of things very different from so what does, the Cowboys' offense has done. So, yeah, I don't think... Uh, does that concern you then? Because if I... Yeah, if I play this out, like, no, 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 I actually agree with you. I, I kind of feel bad for the kid, but, like, I like I was rooting for him, but he's just not good enough, in my opinion. Like, you know, 2020 is going to come around. I assume he's going to want to get paid. I, I assume even if he took a discount with the Cowboys that I think if you're the Cowboys, no matter how friendly of a contract it is, I, I don't think he's even good enough. Even if you, you know, paid all your other surrounding parts that he's good enough to win a chip, right? Like, um, the only example I can think of was like uh, like Rex Grossman with the Bears, right? That team was loaded with exception of the quarterback position. They almost won a title. Like, I think Flacco, and I'm not a big Flacco fan, depending on if you want to pick Flacco or Eli, mm-hmm. the worst quarterback quarterback to win a title is that a stretch or am I fair in the last I think it's close I mean yeah for sure I mean I think now is that good is Dak as good as either one of those guys in your opinion uh I don't think he's nearly as good of a I don't think he's as good at stretching the field as those guys are like I think that those those guys the one thing that those two guys would do in that the seasons when they won Super Bowls was that they were able to like take chances downfield stretch the field hit a deep guy push the defensive back you know the defense back a little bit and those guys were able to do that. Dak, for some reason, when he tries to throw down field, it, he just can't connect on those throws, like with any consistency. So there's just no fear from, from opposing defenses that makes them kind of like have to pull back. So instead, now you've got one of the best offensive lines in football and one of the best running backs in football, and you should be able to kind of, you know, pound teams and run the football. Well, now you can't really be that effective running the football because teams are already pulled up close to stop the run and to stop the short passes that Dak does. So you know, I, I can't say at this point that Dak's better, you know, than either of those guys. He's just not as good of a passer. I mean, when he throws downfield and outside the numbers, he becomes extremely inaccurate. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, Dez couldn't really be successful in the Cowboys offense because he's a guy that he was never a speed guy. I don't really think Dez like lost a step. I mean, he was never really a fast guy. He's a guy who's going to overpower defensive back if the ball is thrown to him, like in the right spot, like back shoulder throws kind of, you know, deep balls where he won at the line of scrimmage and he's able to kind of go up and win a jump ball. Dak doesn't make those throws accurately. He throws, if the ball's supposed to be, you know, high to the outside, he throws it low to the inside. And, you know, when he throws downfield, he's he's throwing the ball two yards out of bounds. Or it's, that's where the problem is, is that defenses are able to take away what the Cowboys do well. And until Dak improves his accuracy, which I'm not sure he's going to, they're going to continue to have a tough time beating teams because their defense hasn't 
been like good enough to overcome those so, Andy, things. I mean, yeah. Quick question. So like, again, just watching you guys play the Panthers, I mean, Cam has never come off as the most accurate passer, in my opinion. I mean, are there some plays just uh, this past week that I just I just didn't see make those passes, but obviously he makes it up for in a multitude of different ways. You don't think Dak, say, say he just never gets his accuracy down, you don't think he can make it up in terms of that kind of like um, squirting around or running around or running with the ball? You don't think he can make it up in other intangibles? or No, because like if you're comparing like Cam, for example, Cam has a monster arm. Like, he has a very strong arm and he can throw the ball downfield. Like he's been inaccurate at times, but the thing, the difference between Cam is, you know, first off, Cam is faster. Um, he's, he's a better athlete. He's more athletic than Dak. And he's also, he's, you know, he's, he's quite bigger than Dak too. I mean, Dak is a big guy. Dak is, I believe he's, he's somewhere like six, you know, six, three, 225, 230 pounds. Um, Cam Newton's like six, five, 255. Like he's a big guy. He's fast. He can run. He's just, he's a better natural runner than Dak is. He's got a much stronger arm than Dak has and he's probably even more accurate than Dak is too I mean so you know I don't think that Dak is necessarily comparable to you know to that I, I, I don't I think know that, I mean still young in Dak's career so we still sure. gotta see but to this point I, it's been really kind of yeah I think that's fair um, I will say I guess then one final question I, I asked for you about your Cowboys you know, truthfully, I was actually kind of rooting for you guys. It was, it was exciting. Uh, you know, you get Dak and Azik and I think, what was it, back-to-back drafts? Where, like, I've always said, like, when I saw the Seahawks, when Russell Wilson was on his, you know, rookie contract, that seems like a formula for teams to really make a splash and possibly get to the Super Bowl, right? You have this small window where the talent output versus what you're paying the guy is just totally out of whack, right? Because they're on the rookie contract, but they're way outperforming the rookie contract. And then that allows you to either pay in other positions or even slightly overpay in other positions. And you have this nice small window, but then as soon as that rookie gets out of his early contract, then you can't afford the other guys. Like look at Seattle, multitude of other examples, et cetera, et cetera. So like I'm I'm looking at the small window you guys had where I believe Zeke is on uh, off of his rookie contract in 2021. So with that that year coming in, you assume that he's going to be worth every penny. Um, do you think then, and if now you know Dak's not your franchise quarterback, because I thought that was going to be exciting, right? You have two pivotal positions, quarterback and running back on rookie contracts where they're going to perform lights out. Unfortunately, not for the quarterback position with Dak. So then do you just quickly try to get another quality quarterback on a rookie contract or do you get someone from free agent? Like, what would you do if you're the Cowboys champ? Yeah, I I think it's really hard to get like a potential franchise quarterback um, through free agency these days without like overpaying them by a ton. So for me, I would rather draft a guy and and hope that that's your franchise quarterback. That's that personally me. I think that the Cowboys they might have been able to get like a Mason, Rod- a Mason Rudolph in this past draft. Man, they could have drafted. Uh, I mean, they could have gotten Lamar Jackson. You know, I, these guys were available. Um, Lamar Jackson would have been a much better version of like what Dak does. You know what I mean? Like just overall like uh, athletic ability and just the guy was a phenomenal passer. He did everything in college, you know? I mean, the one question with him was his accuracy. But for example, I mean, we passed on a guy like Lamar Jackson who, you know, who knows? He could be a generational type quarterback. I mean, and he went like with the last pick in the first round. So I think that you could get a guy in the draft if you're willing to use your first or even maybe second round pick. But I, I think it's too hard to get somebody in free agency. Um, you know, 
if you look at like who are the best free agent quarterbacks like of late that have signed with well, So let me ask you this, just so I understand your tier rankings, please. Be, I, I was a big Lamar Jackson fan in college. I don't know how he's going to pan out in the NFL, but right now you would say Dak Prescott's better than Lamar Jackson. I would take Lamar Jackson over Dak Prescott. Wow. Okay. Because I think I think I think Lamar Jackson has way more upside than Dak has. I mean, like, and I love Dak as like a human being and as a leader and all that stuff. I mean, those things aside, like just pure like playing football and throwing the football and winning games. I mean. The Cowboys this season probably have possibly the best defense that they've had in probably 15 to 20 years. I mean, that's what I'm looking at from this Cowboys team. And what you saw for like the entire second half of last season and week one of this season, you're seeing an offense that simply can't move the ball because Dak is just throwing the ball all over the field, missing his receivers. I mean, I don't know if that's fixable. I mean, he was a fourth-round pick, and the the draft is a crapshoot as it is. Like, I don't, you know, necessarily want to kill Dak, but, like, the the thing is, he just, right now, he does not look like a starting NFL franchise quarterback. Let me ask you, who's better, Lamar Jackson or Jimmy G? I mean, you know, Jimmy G's got a little bit of an NFL track record. I mean, I don't know what Lamar Jackson's going to turn out to be in the NFL. Like, if you look at Lamar Jackson and just, like, what his pure skills are, I mean, the guy could end up being like in a great quarterback that could run and can throw like you know we don't know that because we don't know how he's going to adjust to the NFL like a lot of quarterbacks take a ton of time to even adjust the NFL like so right now NFL ready I mean Jimmy G looks like he's more NFL ready despite the fact that he didn't have a good game this week Um, but you know the reason why I did last year yeah the reason why I asked you that is because um, I guess I don't know if you're the Cowboys do you think obviously the Patriots want to trade Jimmy G out of the conference I don't know who the, the buyers were for Jimmy G, right? Um, didn't uh, the 49ers coach and uh, Jimmy G have some sort of uh, relationship or something? Like, would you have given up your second round, 2018 second round pick for Jimmy G, like in a heartbeat or not necessarily? Yeah, I think I think a second round pick is, I think a second round pick is fair because I think that um, Jimmy G showed enough, like in the NFL when he got to play in games that he could be successful. And like, you don't know, like when you draft a guy just straight out of the NFL draft, like you have no idea what you're going to get when the guy steps on the on the field in the NFL. Are the so, Cowboys are the Cowboys a Super Bowl contender with Jimmy G? Oh, I believe that they're much more of a Super Bowl contender with Jimmy G than they are with Dak. Okay, I mean, yeah, he could. Jimmy G is a far better passer than Dak is. And if you put Jimmy G with the Cowboys' offensive line and with the Cowboys' running game, then all of a sudden he's a way better. I mean, a way better passer because now teams have to, you know, they have to give so much more attention to the run game that it opens things up a ton for your wide receivers. And, okay, I mean, you, you, yeah. you know, this past year, there was just this big quarterback roulette. I guess I guess it's just bad timing for the Cowboys where they didn't know Dak was not the franchise quarterback, or maybe, sadly, they still think he is. But, like, you had all those moves, and, like, I, I, I sadly imagine the Cowboys with any one of those guys, and I think you guys would be much improved, right? Like, your, your Alex Smiths, your Kirk Cousins, your um, – I'm not a big Sam Bradford fan, but if, if, he, if he wasn't always breaking, I mean, I just – I imagine any one of those guys behind that big offensive line that you guys have, and you guys would be a much better team. Um, do you think that's fair? Yeah, I think, um, I think, like, Alex Smith, for example, I think Alex Smith is kind of, like, similar to – 
like what Dak would, and I'm not a huge Alex Smith fan, but Alex Smith is like a game manager quarterback that he's not really going to like win a ton of games for you, but he's not really going to lose a lot of games for you either. He's a pretty accurate passer, um, but he doesn't really stretch the field that much. He's he's a quarterback that could be extremely successful in, on a team like what the Cowboys have right now. So, and I've never been an Alex Smith fan. I've actually kind of knocked him in the past because I don't really think that he's a number one type pick like he was. I, I totally agree. Um, with you. I totally agree. With you. But he's a better version of Dak, in my opinion. He's like a much better version of what Dak would like to be. I think. So, yeah, I'm not sure what you guys need from a distance. Like, uh, you know, I don't want to hurt your feelings. Like, I've always felt like Romo could win you games, but I feel like occasionally he could lose you games. I feel like Dak. There was there was a small period of time in his rookie year where I thought he had some Russell Wilson in him, where I saw him win games actually. Um, I don't know if that was just an aberration and he's kind of come back to like I I had him as a poor man's Russell Wilson, which I think is a lot of praise. And I was like, if he's a poor man's Russell Wilson and Zeke is what he is, you guys are like really scary for the next couple of years. Um, and yeah, I agree with you. Alex Smith won't really lose you games. He won't win you games. He'll just manage it. But with all the pieces that you guys have on the Cowboys, I, I thought that might be a little bit more stable. Not so, like having that stable things where like when you guys lose games, it's not because of any mistakes, but just because you guys played a better team. I thought that'd be good just given your kind of recent track history. Um, but I don't know. It's hard to point what the, what the problem is, you know, with you guys. I mean, I don't know if Garrett's ever going to lose his job, but um, yeah, maybe you guys yeah. just need to blow up the whole thing. I don't know. Yeah. I think the biggest difference between like what Dak is and what Tony Romo was was that like Tony Romo had he had to win games for the Cowboys like they wouldn't win otherwise that's the funny part so like totally I think that Romo yeah. got he got a ton of crap throughout his career for like you know the few mistakes that he made when in reality like he basically he, I am totally under the thought process but just based on watching and seeing how it was Tony Romo turned four and twelve caliber teams into eight and eight teams I and he turned eight and eight totally teams yeah. he turned eight and eight teams into like 12 and four teams so like he made them competitive his entire career and I just hated seeing him take so much crap because he Tony Romo never started a game in his entire career where the Cowboys were mathematically eliminated from playoff contention so like wow. while he didn't get them to the playoffs every season like he made extremely bad teams like I'm talking teams that had the worst defense in the NFL like one of teams had the worst defense in NFL history. Like, you know, he took those teams and he made them competitive. His entire it's, meant, it's meant to be praiseworthy, but I really view Romo as a poor to homeless man's Aaron Rodgers. And I say that affectionately yeah, he, because he's a slinger, but it's like when Rodgers makes a mistake, I forgot what the playoffs games that he, he threw the interceptions. I think, I think it was the Seahawks or someone, but like they get magnified, but because of Rodgers greatness, you kind of look past them. And even if you think about the game that he just won against the Bears, that guy had that interception, but you know, you, you almost deify Rodgers when he does it. Whereas Romo, when he wins it, his wins aren't as dramatic or as great as Rodgers. Maybe that's because he's on the Cowboys and he gets overshadowed by that. But then when he makes the mistakes, they somehow get like blown up. And so, um, it's really funny comparing those two, right? Because Rodgers seems to get more credit for his wins, but Romo will get more blame for his losses or something. It's, it's, it's a weird dichotomy. Yeah, it was almost like Romo had to do it every single week. Like every single game, like he had to do the spectacular or they were not going to win. So like I was disgusted. I was one of the guys who when he got back from his injuries and because his last couple of years, like if he was not injured, he was like potential NFL MVP caliber quarterback. 
quarterback. I mean, that's like how good he became at like, you know, doing his things. And he kind of took a little bit of a backseat in his final year to um, the running game because that's the way they finally figured out how to build the team so that he could do what he did. And that game against the Packers, for example, I mean, Romo threw like two incomplete passes or three incomplete passes in that entire game. And one of them happened to be the, the Dez uh, catch or drop or whatever, you know, technically. I mean, so he did everything in his power to win that game. And like if Romo had these teams that Dak Prescott has right now, I would honestly believe that this Cowboys team would be a major Super Bowl contender because they the offense would be almost unstoppable with the way he could throw the ball in comparison to how Zeke could run the ball. Teams couldn't play, you know, with a stacked box defensively with with Romo out there at quarterback. That's why yeah. he's so nuts. You know I, mean, I, mean? I, like they, I know that too. Uh, I just remember a couple straight years where I was big on, uh, what's his face, uh, Laurent Robinson with your triple threat, Miles Austin and Dez and you guys with Romo, that was like, it was so scary week to week. Like he had so many weapons with him with obviously Witten there too. Um, yeah, it's, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's, it's kind of just unfortunate, his window. It's funny because those guys weren't even weapons. I mean, if you look back at it, like Tony Romo made these guys like these average, pretty much average football players, like potential pro bowlers. I mean, look at what Laurent Robinson and what Miles Austin did outside of those prime Tony Romo years. Like he basically took them out of the scrap heap and turned them into like big time weapons. So, I mean, that's the type, you know, that's the type of quarterback and he'll never get the credit now, especially he's retired, sadly. Like he'll never get that credit because, you know, you're so, it's so based off of like winning a Super Bowl and, it's just sad because he really did not have Super Bowl caliber teams or Super Bowl caliber coaches when he was with the Cowboys. Um, you know, he, 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 he had Bill Parcells at the very beginning, but he didn't really get Bill Parcells because, you know, that was his like first year. It was like Wade Phillips and, you know, then Jason Garrett. And you know, I'll always be bothered by that because I think that he didn't quite get every bit of respect that he deserves. I'm excited about watching the uh, football life. Did you see that? They're coming out with the Tony Romo version of uh, NFL football life. I did see that. I did see that. That looks cool. Oh, I'm excited. Yeah, I can't wait to watch that. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's where it's at. Speaking of I can't wait to watch, uh, last, last thing, week two games, anything jump out at you? I mean, I see a bunch of division games. Um, I mean, I'm personally Pats fan. I, I feel good about this Pats-Jags rematch. I feel like we'll handle them better. Um, I, I think you guys got the, I think you guys got the Giants, but there's a, there's Packers, Vikings, and um, I don't know. There's a couple of good games I'm looking forward to next week. Anything jump out at you? Yeah, I'm kind of with you. Uh, New England and Jacksonville looks like a great game. Um, that's going to be real interesting to see because that, that really is kind of like a rematch. Um, Jacksonville's defense being what it is. It's a little bit unfortunate that Fournette is injured. I don't think he's going to play. Um, Carolina, you guys got to deal with Saquon Barkley. You guys got to deal with Saquon Barkley. Yeah, you know, I'm not too uh, – like, the Giants offense still doesn't – me very much. I mean, okay. you know, Saquon is phenomenal. I mean, I, he impresses me. But, um, you know, I don't know. I, I wouldn't be surprised if the Cowboys lose to the Giants because I just did Cowboys offense right now with Dak at quarterback. I just don't have any any faith in them. So, but being back in Dallas, um, I think that'll be a good game. Um, and then Minnesota and Green Bay, to me, that might be the most, that might be the game I want to watch the most. Yeah. Um, outside of, you know, obviously the Cowboys, I don't want, yeah, that's always going to be my number one. But I would say uh, Green Bay, Minnesota, and um, Oh, Panthers, Falcons. Panthers, yeah. Falcons are at one and Vikings, Packers are at one. Jeez, two good games at one. Yeah, that's a tough one. I think, uh, well, I base pretty much what I'm, wor- what I'm watching off of my fantasy team. 
Um, so I'll be watching. I'll definitely be watching the Minnesota Green Bay game. Um, man, Chiefs Steelers at one two. Man, that's a good game too. Jeez, all these one o'clock games. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, the Jets. Uh, sorry, the New England and Jacksonville game is going to be a big time game. I'm going to have that probably on my um, on one of my TVs over here <laughs> for the later games. But uh, and then we got Cowboys and Giants at night, so that'll be. But uh, yeah, those are like the best games I would say probably, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Well, I mean, I'm excited. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's all the time we have this week. Uh, my name is John Lee. And I'm Andy Benzwitz. Hope you enjoy the show. You, you can reach out to us at Be Nice Andy on Twitter, Instagram, and Gmail. And we'll see you later. Cool. Take care, man. All right, man. Have a good one. Bye.